and inspired word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Uh, You have uh, inspired these words. You have preserved them. And you are now to be at work in them and through them, by them, in our own hearts. Would you open ears to hear Uh, uh, give us minds to understand, hearts to embrace, and beyond that, even tongues to delight in, to celebrate uh, as we rejoice together in the birth, birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, Nothing demonstrates the worldly power of nations more clearly than their ability to take people's money and send them to war. That sounds like a pretty good summary to me. If you want evidence of of just how powerful a nation is, it is it is marked most clearly in their ability to take their people's money and send those same people off to war. And that's the context. That's the setting. That's where this passage takes place. And you get evidence of that just as the chapter opens up. We see a governor, a ruler, uh, a leader of the land uh, flexing his muscles in anticipation of 
taking his people's money and knowing just how many he can send off the war off to war should the day arise first i want you to see what are the the means of jesus's birth notice luke now we've actually preached through luke and if you were here 10 years ago you might remember uh, I don't even expect that, to be honest with you, but you at least know that somewhere in our past, uh, we preach through the Gospel of Luke. But Luke, Luke promises right off the bat, he tells us from the start that, that what he's giving, what he's writing for us, what he's recording for us is a, a well-researched, well-documented, well-organized, well-laid-out, account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He tells us from the start, look, I've, I've talked to people, I've asked people, and, and the aim of this gospel is that this gospel be as historically accurate as possible. And, and the reality is you actually can just go to any old um, archive building and, and look up. Just go to Rome, go into the archives and find some fella named Caesar Augustus and find some fella named Quirinius. And you can see that there literally are people. He gives us these kinds of anchors, if you will, in uh, recounting this life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Caesar Augustus wasn't horrible. He wasn't a believer. But for the most part, there's this 200-year history, this 200-year space in the, the, the work, the life, the activity of the Roman Empire where really nobody's attacking and nobody's going off to war. And that's under Caesar Augustus's rule and reign. Quirinius and Caesar, they do order this... Um, this registration, they order a census. They want to count noses and know just how many people does he have within his uh, power at his, um, you know, what kind of money am I going to have coming in? Uh, who can I send off, the, off to war if that needs to happen anytime soon? And so everyone has to go back to their home place, right? Some of you have a home place. Some of you not so much. But you have to go back to your home place, right? To where your mom and them are and go sign the paper that says, I'm still here. I don't live here right now. I live somewhere else, but you can count me. And they were counted by families. And so Joseph and Mary, both descendants of David, returned to Bethlehem to the home place to have their noses counted. Of course, Mary is nine months pregnant. Like, your OBGYN wouldn't let you travel to Birmingham in a limo. That's how pregnant she is. And she's riding a donkey and or walking 90 miles to Bethlehem. And so it's there, while they're there in Bethlehem, that Jesus is born. And so the question at some level becomes, why was this census taken? 
Why bother? Why does Caesar Augustus want to know right now of all times just how many people he's he's ruling, he's governing? Well, certainly humanly speaking, he wants to know what am I looking for? What am I looking at in terms of tax revenue for the next five, ten years? What kind of money can I count on? Who do I need to go defeat? Who do I need to go conquer if this isn't going to be enough? How can I add more people and therefore more tax money to my IRS? Right? They have the IRS going out into their Roman colonies and gathering up the money that they are supposed to collect. They are at peace, but we know that the war to end all wars didn't, hasn't. And you can't even count on that. You can't count on this peace lasting. You don't know how long that's going to be. And so at some level, the reason for the census is because Caesar wants to know who he's got. Right? But what he doesn't realize is there's always something else going on. There's something else going on behind the scenes that he can't see and that he doesn't even recognize. In fact, turn with me to Micah chapter 5. And let me just show you what's happening um, from centuries before Caesar Augustus would even exist, much less rule. And by the way, it took a little craftiness to become the ruler. He had to defeat Antony and Cleopatra. He was the preferred ruler after Julius Caesar, but he did have to fight a couple of battles to bring that about. Hundreds of years before that would even happen, though. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. A verse you know well. A verse you've heard who knows how many times over the Christmas seasons of your life. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Do you see? Hundreds of years before this census, God ordained that Bethlehem was the spot where his king, his ruler, his appointed, that appointed descendant of David would be born. In other words, Caesar's just a screwdriver. Yesterday, my brother Jeff, the dog leash, right? They have this little something oodle thing. Um, the dog leash was messed up. Jeff, where's the screwdriver? That one I can do. I can't do many. That one I can do, right? You see, it's just a tool, but it's the tool he needed to do the job. To fix the leash, his dog's leash. Caesar's a screwdriver in, Jesus, in God's hand. Right? He's the, the tool that God uses to accomplish the fulfillment of Micah 5 verse 2. It's God who brings about the fullness of time 
plug for the ladies' Galatians Bible study next spring, by the way. Um, but that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the heart of the king is in God's hand. He directs it like a, a stream of water wherever he wants to. And he's directed Caesar to say, now's the time for this census so that Mary, nine months pregnant, could travel to Bethlehem and there the appointed ruler, the appointed king of Israel would be born. Caesar is looking toward his own self-promotion, self-protection, increasing his income. But God is using Caesar to bring about his plan. This means that Jesus' birth is, is included in God's sovereign will and in Caesar's self-serving laws. That's the means of Jesus' birth. Second, I want you to see the messengers of Jesus' birth. And like I said, we'll focus a little more on verses 13 and 14 uh, tonight. But, you know, if the president goes to Chicago... You don't play hail to the chief here in Athens, Alabama. You, you don't play hail to the chief where the president isn't, right? You play hail to the chief. You play his song that announces his arrival among the people to whom he is arriving, right? You play it where he is and to the people that he's coming to. And yet there's this messenger who's a little ways off, we read, right? In the same region, though not exactly in downtown Bethlehem, there are shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. In fact, they have to travel to go see this Jesus, to go see this thing that the messenger tells them about. But the reality is, if Jesus has come not just for Bethlehem, it doesn't matter where the messenger goes. He's speaking to the people that Jesus has been sent to visit. Right? That's exactly the context. He's, they're out in the field to these shepherds and they come and announce the arrival of this king, the arrival of this savior. But not just in that manger. Not just in that sort of the center of Bethlehem, but out in the fields surrounding it. Those are the people He's come for. He's come for, for all people. He's come for, for those kind of outsiders. And we'll see that a little more clearly even in a second. But notice the angel's first words. We have this notion that angels are cute little babies. Right? Our figurines are cute little baby angels with wings. And yet every single time an angel shows up on the earth in the Bible, their first words are, don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. I'm just a cute little baby angel. Like that's not what it means. Like clearly our idea of what we think angels should look like and, and be like is completely other from what every other appearance of angels ever shows us in Scripture. And then that one became a multitude. 
And the reality is they're doing the only thing we see angels doing, right? Angels, there's, the angels are either praising God or they're making announcements. That's the job of an angel. And so this one, the multitude, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Praising God, making an announcement. And in fact, it turns out they're doing both at the same time. Some of our favorite hymns come from angels. In Isaiah 6, there's angels gathered around the throne in heaven and they're calling to each other. It doesn't say they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here in this passage, they're gathered around the field and it doesn't say they're singing. But it does say they say Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. That's Latin. They wouldn't have spoken Latin, right? You've got this. That Presumably. It's what angels do. Angels, angels praise God and make announcements. And this angel army that just sort of suddenly appears in the sky is doing just that. But they're singing of salvation and the rule of Jesus. They're saying, they're announcing, they're promising that there is salvation here and there is a ruler. And it turns out they're both the same person. I hope you paid attention to verse 3 of let all mortal flesh keep silence. His rule so that he's come our full homage to demand. The heavenly messengers announce on earth because it's on earth where the need is. It's, it's to earth that Jesus is sent because it's on earth where sinners need the saving. And so it's to those sinners that these angels announce the arrival of the Savior King. The means of Jesus' birth. The messengers of Jesus' birth. Notice in verses 10 and 11. The message of these angels. The message of His birth. The angel brings, we're told, good news. It's the word gospel. It's the, the Greek word that you use gospel. It's the Greek word that gives us that word. Or it's actually a verb, proclaiming the gospel. It's the same sort of concept. But in other words, these angels have been sent to announce good news to these shepherds. Have you ever thought about what that concept even means? I mean, I think in some ways... We just kind of brush over it like, okay, yeah, I know what good news is. And we go on about our way. But, but think for a second. Sometimes it's good to actually think about the things that we know already to remind ourselves of, of those things that we already know. Think about the concept of, of good news. When you turn on the TV at night and you watch Liz Hurley on WAFF, Telling you the events of the day, right? 
She's giving you the news. You turn on the TV at four, five, six, ten, way too many times if we're honest, and you watch the news. And what they're doing is they're telling you these are the events that have happened. She doesn't tell you what to do. She doesn't tell you what to do with that information. Liz Hurley doesn't give you advice. She just simply reports the news. Now, thankfully, the weather guys give us advice. We need that around here, but that's a different issue altogether. This angel comes with news, not advice, right? The, the difference between the two. Advice is, here's what you should do. News is, here's what's happened somewhere else for you. And that's the announcement of these angels. They're bringing good news, but it's, it's not just news about events that mean nothing. It's good news for you, they tell these shepherds. And that good news, verse 11, is that a Savior King has been born in the city of David. Israel's true and rightful King has come to claim his throne. Notice the announcements. In the city of David, Christ the Lord, but also he is the Messiah. Why the city of David? Why Bethlehem? But because it's, it's to David that God promises a descendant who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so because they're in uh, because Jesus is a descendant of David and is that descendant of David, they have to go to Bethlehem and it's there that he is to be born. It is there that he is to rule and reign over his people. Thrones are passed from parent to child. That was the issue with Elizabeth the first not having said child. Thrones, scepters, they're given from father to son, from mother to daughter, from depending on the country, but from parent to child. They're, they're passed down through bloodlines. And Jesus, in the flesh, is, is a descendant of David. And so he's in Bethlehem to be born and is therefore the rightful heir of the throne. And so the angels say that king, that descendant of David, that ruler, the one who comes to demand full homage, which is what we just sang a second ago, has been born. But he's not just a king. He's also a savior who is Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the one who's come to to. To solve the problem that is our sin and deliver us from, well, from the one who holds us captive until he defeats that enemy. Right? The, the picture is there is a king who's come to rescue you because you need rescuing. You need someone to defeat sin and guilt and shame that holds you in bondage and to to loose you loose those chains and set you free to come and serve him 
sin deserves death and it deserves the wrath and curse of God. And so this king has come to set us free from that punishment. He's come to rule. A king comes to rule. A savior comes to deliver. And that's exactly who Jesus is in the flesh. Both the king, both the ruler and the savior. And so it's through him that peace comes. On those on whom his favor rests. The angels are announcing to the shepherds the news that God is to be praised for giving that promised Messiah King. The means of Jesus' birth, the messengers of Jesus' birth, the message of his birth, and then finally the meaning of his birth. And this is where we'll spend a little more time in verses 13 and 14 tonight. But let me just ask two sort of application questions in terms of the meaning of the birth of Jesus. The first is this. To whom is Jesus' birth announced in this passage? Right? To whom does the angel go? Well, the answer is shepherds. And 90% of the people in the room go, those are people that keep sheep and, and then I'm done. Like after that, I don't have the context. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the implication of that should be. Here's the thing. In that world, shepherds were eternally, monumentally, perpetually unclean. They're low lowlifes. Their testimony wasn't allowed in court. They were the class right above lepers so at the bottom is lepers then you get shepherds those are the people that god sent his messengers to announce the birth of this savior right so when you unwrap a gift when you wrap presents for christmas there's a little tag and on the tag, there's a, if you buy the pre-printed, if you don't, you, maybe you just make your own. But it says two, and then there's a colon. And you have to put the name of the person you're giving the present to. And from, and a colon, and you have to write your name because I'm the one giving that present. Well, the two is the shepherds. And from whom is the gift given? It's from God Himself. In other words, it's a picture that Jesus has come for the needy, for the outsiders, for the outcasts, for, for those who need him most, quite honestly. Jesus was born for needy sinners. And then we turn around and think, I mean, I guess I'm a sinner. I mean, yeah, I'm a sinner. But I haven't done any of the real bad ones. Right? Okay, I'm, I'm a sinner. I get it. But really, my sin, the kind of stuff that I've done, really just a slap on the wrist and we'll go about our merry way is really not that big a deal. I mean, at least I haven't done what that guy has done. Or at least I'm not as bad as the girl down at the other end of the row. In some ways, we... Limit the people that Jesus has come to save to sort of the higher class. 
the cultural elite. We sort of make this case that, well, Christians, I mean, as Christians, we're just so much better than everybody else. and We're just so much smarter than everybody else. And Jesus, you sure are lucky to have me on your team. And this is you know, going to go really well for you. And I know you're going to appreciate this very much because you've come for these. Like, that's what we do. Even in our missions, we sort of think in terms of, well, who are the really sort of the cool people? Uh, and, and we need to send people there. Sometimes we think there are people who are too bad for Jesus. Sometimes we think there are people who are so wicked, so evil, so sinful, so far out there that the arm of Jesus surely couldn't reach them. Why waste their time? Why even bother? Sometimes we say, I just simply need to get my life in order. I'll get my issues straightened out and then I'll go to church. Then I'll come to Jesus. Let me just solve the things I've got going on in my life. And then I'll think about coming to Jesus. But the reality is the gospel says you can't. The gospel says that you need Jesus. That your guilt, your sin demands the wrath and curse of God. We're all guilty of cosmic treason, and we all stand in need of the Savior King born in Bethlehem. Jesus has come to you. He's come for you. Do you believe that? But there's a second implication in this birth of Jesus. Perhaps you know the song. It's been sung by dozens and dozens of people. There are a few versions out there. There's one in particular that's probably better than the rest. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Sometimes we watch our lives. We think of our lives and we think, no, nobody understands. Nobody comprehends. Nobody knows what it's like to walk in my shoes. Nobody knows what it's like to have done the things I've done, to be the person I am. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But where is Jesus at the end of this passage? He's in a manger. He's in a a feed trough of sorts. Some sort of makeshift bed. And the people gathered around him are at least mentioned by name, are Mary and Joseph, his parents, and low-life shepherds, outcasts, outsiders. He's in a, a feed trough wrapped up in swaddling clothes. The second person of the Trinity has taken on Flesh, the flesh of humanity. He dwells among and with his people. He's been born in poverty and and unwelcomed and uninvited and cast out into this whatever this stable sort of situation is. In other words, Jesus does know what it means to be despised, to be rejected, even as a baby. 
He was born despised and rejected. He understands exactly what you've been through. He's been mistreated even before he was born. Relegated to the room where the animals are. Set aside. Not exactly gotten the treatment that you would expect from a savior king who rules and reigns over all of creation. Do you know the next line of the song? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody but Jesus. Jesus knows your trouble. Jesus knows your struggle. Jesus knows your conflict. And in fact, was born into it. It's not like something he figured out later in life. He doesn't know it from a distance. He doesn't know it because he's God and he knows everything and he's omniscient. And so he knows. No, he knows it. The passage reminds us that Jesus lying in this nasty, dirty, smelly feed trough in a stable is really only the beginning of the pain and sorrow he will endure for us. He sympathizes with our weakness. He sympathizes with your suffering. He sympathizes with your outcastness, with your need, with your Rejection. He knows exactly. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody but Jesus. Which means you can trust Him. It means you can find refuge in Him. And it also means you can find refuge in Him and Him alone. Because the reality is nobody else knows the suffering you've seen. The trouble you've seen. But Jesus knows it. Find refuge in Him. Run to Him. He has stooped to us that He might give us life. That He might give us peace. That He might rule and reign in our hearts. May God grant us the grace to celebrate that this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the gift of life in Christ. uh, For giving us this Savior King to come and uh, free us from bondage to sin, from bondage to our own uh, sinful, evil desires. uh, To deliver us from the power of darkness and to set us free uh, to... Humbly submit to you. Would you, Lord Jesus, rule and reign in us? Would you, as you demand full homage, would you slowly, bit by bit, work in us greater delight and joy in in bowing our knee to you? And may it be that as we celebrate Christmas together, We would celebrate the birth of a Savior King who knows the trouble we endure and knows it intimately. Nobody but Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.